There's an old saying that people don't leave bad jobs, they leave bad bosses. There is perhaps a perfect example of this back in 1957 when eight employees of the Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory decided that they had enough of the authoritarian leadership of its owner, William Shockley. Later known as the Traitorous Eight, these employees went and partnered with Sherman Mills Fairchild to form Fairchild Semiconductor. Now, for the next decade, Fairchild Semiconductor was a pioneer in the manufacturing of transistors and integrated circuits, and in the mid-70s, they developed microprocessors to compete with Intel. This led them to the video game industry, and there, engineers at their company made a very significant contribution to video game history in the form of one of the most iconic aspects of our hobby and industry. Today, we'll be looking back at the whole of their contribution, the Fairchild Channel F home video game console, and we'll tell you the story of the Traitorous 8, the founding of Fairchild Semiconductor, the beginnings of Silicon Valley, the development of the Channel F console, and its contributions to our hobby. So stick around and join us for a whole lot of history on today's trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 114th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we will tell you the story about one game, console, person, technology, something relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about it, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we are looking back at the Fairchild Channel F console, originally released in November of 1976. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who often tells me that he's really, really tired of my authoritarian control of my own podcast. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, tell all these people right now about how good I am to you and to everyone else. Yes, Dave is good to me and everyone else. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. Good job. You did good. No, that was fucking awful. Do it again. No, thank you. Okay, deal. So what are we playing? What are you, what are you playing? Uh, are you selling chocolate? What the hell? Uh, <laughs> well, Dave. Well, there is, they did, there is now going to be a Resident <clears throat> Evil 4 remake, and they did say that they're not they're going to use a different voice actor for the merchant. So we got to keep his memory alive. Oh, fair, fair. Well, Dave, as for what I've been playing this week, it's been a little bit of oxygen, not included a little bit of runescape, a little bit of rocket league and a little bit of phasmophobia to round out Halloween. Nice. Yes, sir. Now, how about yourself? What you've been playing? Well, rocket league is always on deck. I finished as Dusk Falls, so we knocked that off the list. I played through Scorn, which we got to talk about that for just a moment. I I know we're a history podcast, but we have got to talk about Scorn. Scorn is probably the weirdest fucking game I have ever played. Full stop. That game 
was bizarre. Look, I I had to look it up because I tried to explain score to you the other day and I couldn't. So I'm going to take it right off of the Wikipedia to try to explain this to you real quick. It says Scorn is a first-person biopunk survival horror adventure video game. Okay. <laughs> the player controls a humanoid lost in a nightmarish world filled with odd creatures and living techno-organic structures composed of machines, flesh, and bone. Well, damn. It's it's weird. It, it it's just it, I, I that's I mean the 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 weapons are like living weapons and like the the switches are like these things that you like creatures you put your fingers in like a bowling ball and you slide this it, it's just it's it was just a weird game now do i regret playing it no it's only about five hours from start to finish it's a nice sit down for an afternoon and play through it but good lord that's a weird one so go play scorn it's on game pass right now and um it's a trip man but it doesn't give you anything just a side note it's a game that just throws you into the middle of it with no explanation whatsoever so some people don't like that style that's just a fair warning you have no idea who you are what's going on anything like that just right in the middle and then once i knocked scorn off the list i started playing persona 5 royal i had played a little bit of persona 5 and lost just kind of got lost in it and now that royal is on game pass i have started it I'm already further than I was before, so we're not doing too too bad. Sounds like a very eventful week in gaming for you, Dave. Yeah, well, I'm you know it's been a busy October, so haven't gotten a lot of chance to do some substantial gaming. And it was we had no plans last weekend, and it rained for a good part of it. So yeah, just got caught up on some gaming. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. So yeah, Fairchild Channel F. Tell me, do any of those words mean anything to you? Can you say them again? Fairchild Channel F. Um, the F, F, F. The F stands for fun. Oh, I was going to say the F. I thought the Channel F was like on the old AV selector. I thought there was like N and F. Maybe. I don't know. I know no, there was one and two. But... VH. There was, there was VHF. Maybe that's what you're thinking Maybe of. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I don't know. UHF and VHF. That, that sounds right. I should. I mean, what would it be? something with frequencies ultra high frequency and very high frequency i don't i honestly i'd be lying if i gave you an actual definition right now so uh do you want to make a bet (laughs) well today we're gonna learn all about the fairchild channel f and i'd honestly i'd put money on the fact that most of our listeners have probably never even heard of fairchild industries period so With that being said, I thought I would tell you a little story about Sherman Mills Fairchild and the Traitorous Eight. Hmm? The Traitorous Eight? The Traitorous Eight, yes. That's a big part of this story. So, Sherman Mills Fairchild is a rather interesting man. He has been inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame. He had founded over 70 companies in his lifetime and held over 30 patents for various products that you probably have used and you know sometime or know of admittedly he had a little nudge to start his father was george winthrop fairchild who was a republican congressman and also the co-founder of ibm so um, he didn't exactly come from nothing but he made the best of what he had he went to harvard and 
as a freshman in, at Harvard in 1915, he invented the first synchronized camera shutter and flash. Nowadays, we take for granted that when it takes a picture, the flash goes off. But back then, you had to have two different devices and try to do it at the same time. And he invented the concept of a, a device that allowed them to go off at the same time. In 1917, Sherman... Mills Fairchild tried to enlist into the army to help fight in World War One, but for various health reasons, he was rejected. And he was really still determined to help the war effort. So he went to Washington with his father, who again was a congressman, and they won a government contract, or his father helped him win a government contract to develop an aerial camera to help the war effort. Now, Fairchild worked on this, his aerial cameras through the war, but realistically, he didn't make any contributions to World War I. But after the war in 1920, with the progress he did make, he was able to incorporate his business, and he founded the Fairchild Aerial Camera Corporation, and from there, the, the business began to grow. In fact, during World War II, over 90% of all the aerial cameras used by Allied forces were designed or manufactured by a Fairchild Corporation. So like the ones that would have been put in the U-2 spy plane were Fairchild? More than likely, yes. Yep. Yeah. In 1921, he bought some old World War I biplanes and he fitted cameras on them to support his efforts in forming the Fairchild Aerial Survey Company. And then realizing that these older planes weren't really suited for the type of maneuvering needed for really good aerial photography, he founded the Fairchild Aviation Company in 1925, and within nine months, it was the second largest aircraft producer in the world. When Sherman was 28, his father died, and as his only child, he inherited his entire estate, uh, which was worth millions, and immediately became the largest individual stockholder in IBM. But he was doing incredibly well in himself. Um, in 1944, Fairchild Aviation became the Fairchild Camera and Instrument Corporation. This was a better title to reflect what they were doing now with everything. You know, they were making machine gun cameras, x-ray cameras, radar cameras, gun synchronizers, radio compasses, and the list goes on. And so they weren't just an airplane and airplane camera company anymore. So camera and instruments. And throughout the 1950s, the company just kept inventing things. They, for instance, they developed a high-speed processing machine that could develop 500 feet of film instantaneously. They developed various technology for cameras. In fact, later on in 1973, they were the first company that was able to produce a commercial device with a what's called a CCD. And a CCD is the foundation of all digital photography. They, ba they basically made one of the first, I wouldn't say the first digital camera, but essentially the first step towards a digital camera. Right on, Dave. And just, just for clear the record, uh, he did not have involvement in the U2 spy plane camera. No, no. you looked it up? Yeah. Uh, who made the who made the camera? Hikon Corporation. Mm. So while the teams at Fairchild were busy inventing things throughout the 1950s, William Shockley was founding the Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory in 1955. And this was the first high technology company founded in a location that is now what we know as Silicon Valley. Now, William Shockley is someone that we all owe a whole lot to. You know, he graduated from Caltech, went to MIT for graduate work, and then he got hired 
to work at Bell Laboratory. We call it Bell Labs. Now, Bell Labs is one of those places where a ton, an absolute ton of history has happened. Uh, researchers that worked at Bell Labs have developed technologies such as radio astronomy, the transistor, lasers, solar cells, and various computer programming languages, including C and C++. I mean, some of these are literally the foundation of modern electronics and, and computers. In fact, nine Nobel Prizes have been awarded for work that was completed at Bell Labs throughout the years. It is a regular incubator for, for technology. Now, throughout the 1930s and 1940s, William Shockley worked on electron devices. You know, like uh, vacuum tubes, electron tubes, the kind of stuff they use in old radios and TVs and the such. And in doing so, he became a pioneer working with semiconductor materials which led to the creation of the first transistor in 1947. Hmm. Hold on, Dave. Transistors are one of the basic building blocks of all modern electronics. We yes. use them in everything, and they've changed quite a bit since they were first invented. So you're likely listening to us on a device that has a microprocessor, like a smartphone or a computer. And the microprocessor can be the brain of your device, the very thing telling itself to spit the sound out to your ears. An advanced microprocessor can use as many as 57 billion, yes, that's billion with a B, transistors. Transistors are the building blocks of electronics. Yes. I mean, everything that we do is semiconductor. It, it, it's literally probably the single most important thing for any electronic device. Now, admittedly, the transistors of today where they cram 57 billion into a little microprocessor look very different than the transistors in 1947. Oh, there's no doubt. About yeah. That. Night and day. I mean, uh, you can't even see them now without a microscope because of how small they have become. They're not like what they were back in the day where they were large devices. I mean, you literally people would build the panel boards or not panel boards, but the wire, the breadboards for a lot of electronic devices by hand, they'd all weld it by hand. And you could see everything just with the naked eye. A lot of things now are mostly done, obviously, through robotics. But even for those who repair them are needing microscopes to be able to zoom in and see all of these different circuit uh, designs. Here in 1947, when they created the first transistor, integrated circuits were theory at that point. That would come... Integrated circuits would have come later in the 50s, mid to late 50s. So um, so you're right. You know what else is really cool? What's that, Dave? They they, they didn't even make the first transistor. It wasn't even a silicone. It, they didn't use silicon as the, as the semiconductor material. They used germanium for the first transistor, which I think is so freaking cool that we even went, like, we changed so much, you know? Absolutely. So the invention of the transistor earned him, along with another pair of men who worked on it with him, a Nobel Prize in physics in 1956. But there's one problem with the situation. William Shockley was notoriously rude and abrasive. His management style was described as authoritarian, and he was largely unpopular with just about anyone that worked with him. And so... Other men who worked, the other two who worked on the, the transistor project with him were promoted to bigger 
projects and positions at Bell Labs before he was. And so Shakti was really, really unhappy with this. So in 1953, he left Bell Labs. And as we started, you know, with this little part, he founded the semiconductor, the Shockey Semiconductor Laboratory in 19, in 1955. He founded the Semiconductor Laboratory in 1955. So in 1956, Shockley goes around and he starts recruiting young PhD graduates that could help further his semiconductor research that he started there when he created the transistor. You know, he wanted to work on diodes and he wanted to because um, he had one that was called the shock Shockley diode and he wanted to work on continue his work on the transistor. But as we found out a moment ago, he was a horrible manager and businessman. He was pr- prone to outbursts of unprovoked aggression and he saw everyone as rivals to him. And for whatever reason, right about the time he was awarded the Nobel Prize, his behavior was best described as paranoia. He started recording all of his phone calls. He demanded that the staff not share amongst one another. They all they had to bring all test results to him. There's one famous incident where uh, one of his secretaries cut his finger, and he 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 saw it. He thought that it was the beginning of a plan to kill him, and he made a whole bunch of people at the company take lie detector tests. This dude was crazy. <laughs> so. Definitely sounds like he had a little, a couple marbles loose up there. Yeah, it doesn't get better. Um, it doesn't. We'll get to that towards the end. But, you know, when you have your boss, the, the guy, you know, who you go to a company because, hey, I get to work with Nobel Prize laureate William Shockley. And you show up and you find out that he's just crazy. Just as quickly as people showed up to the company, people left, you know. And so eight such people left to form their own company and they found an ally in Sherman Fairchild who took them in. And in 1957, they formed the Fairchild semiconductor company. Shockley deserved described their leaving as a betrayal. And these men in history became known as the traitorous eight. Hmm. Interesting. Now, with that being said, Fairchild semiconductor was an absolute trailblazing pioneer of transistors and integrated circuits. So, like I had said, Shockey had originally designed the transistor using uh, germanium as a semiconductive material, but one of the major reasons why these eight guys fell out with Shockley is because they thought that silicone was a better conductive material. And as it turns out, they were correct. <laughs> Hence why we call that area Silicon Valley now, because silicon ab- absolutely became the correct material. And, you know, Fairchild ran with it from 1960 to 1965. They were absolutely the leader in semiconductors in the United States. In fact, they were one of the, they improved the production process of semiconductors so much that by 1965, they were about the only semiconductor company in the United States that could turn a profit on the process. But with any company and its success, people would start to branch out and do their own thing, you know? Um, so there's a term. I'm going to teach you something new today. There's a term called fair children. And fair children refers to spinoff companies that were founded by former Fairchild employees or companies that Fairchild had something to do with. And there are dozens, and I mean dozens, of companies that are Fairchildren, 
but two of the most notable ones you probably know, and these are AMD and Intel. What? So there were enough people that happened to to leave a Fairchild or the Fairchild company and go other places that it became a known like a large term. I mean, the fact that AMD and Intel is involved means that they're pretty big names still where these people left. But I mean, there were just enough of them that did that. Yeah, so I had thrown this at the end, uh, kind of a roundup, but I'll put it here because it's really interesting to me. Let's see. Over a period of 20 years, about 65 different companies were started by teams that could trace their origins to Shockley and Semiconductor. So many, Shockley and Fairchild, so many companies. I think I read a statistic online that at one point, the valuation of all these companies was something like $1.7 trillion dollars. That, could, that were all like started by first or second generation teams that have their origins in this story. Wow. Yeah. It, it literally, you just learned about the start of Silicon Valley because the, the Shockley, the semiconductor laboratory was literally the first, the first company to set up shop in that, like uh, in that area. And then everything else started to grow around it as, you know, Fair, Fairchild is considered one of the early incubators that all these teams started to branch out. That's essentially the history. That's where Silicon Valley came from, which is kind of cool. It started out with the Traitorous Eight, which is just a, 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 a fun way to put it. Now that absolutely is. Now, at about the same time, on the other side of the country, in Samford, Connecticut, American Machine and Foundry, or AMF, was a company that was operating as a manufacturer of bowling alley equipment. Now, you may be asking yourself, how in the hell does bowling alley equipment play into this? I'm about to tell you within its company, there was a research and development department that basically originated many bowling innovations that we, they're not innovations to us. They're bowling to us. For instance, AMF came up with the automated scoring system that would track player scores and display them on TVs in the bowling alley. That was one of their inventions. And now we take that for granted. That's like, how do you play bowling without that? You know? Right. In 1969, they decided to move their R&D department from Connecticut to North Carolina. And a handful of employees just weren't up to the move. They didn't want to pick up their life and move to North Carolina. So they decided to look for employment elsewhere. Now, one of those employees was Norman Elpert, who left to form the Alpex Computer Corporation. Now, at first, as a company that didn't really know what they were doing, they worked on electronic cash registers but they were quickly shut out of that by IBM and some of the other bigger companies that were doing it. And so while they were debating it where to go from there, they had whittled themselves down to only three employees. And while that sounds like a bad thing, it also gave them the opportunity to kind of do whatever they wanted because they didn't have a lot of overhead because they had shrunk so much. And so one of the, one of the three employees suggested that they explore the video game industry, which really had just exploded out of the scene only a year before this. Okay. Okay. Now that employee was William Kirshner. And so William Kirshner went to Alpert said, Hey, let's do video games. And he got to go ahead to pursue his video game idea. And so he brought in an experienced engineer that had worked on a lot of these R and D projects at AMF named Lawrence Haskell. And the plan was simple to them. Kirshner was going to develop the hardware 
that was going to be using a microprocessor. This is about when microprocessors had, had just started to explode out of the scene. So Kirshner was going to develop a little hardware console using a microprocessor, and Haskell would program the software. And so their plan was to make a home video game console, which would let users switch out the games which at the at this time, the only console out there was the Magnavox Odyssey, which we did on an episode a long time ago, and the Odyssey cannot switch games. Not not really. It it had circuit boards that you could plug in and out of it, basically, that would allow like it would change the circuitry inside it. So there were different games to play, but it really wasn't a concept where you could literally switch your games in and out. In early nineteen seventy four Kirshner and Haskell start work on this project, which they named Raven or Remote Access Video Entertainment. They designed this console. It was this metal box about 17 by 17 by 6. It wasn't very big. Um, it had an Intel 8008 CPU, one of the earliest Intel 8-bit processors in it. Uh, and they used it to build this device that could generate like a little 128 by 64 uh, pixel black and white image and it had a whopping like eight kilobytes of memory uh, we've literally used up more memory just talking about the specifics of this console to put it into perspective um well you yeah. do talk a lot dave i do i know i literally mean just the i literally mean we used up more memory just talking about the fact that it was built about an intel cpu not 26 minutes of the podcast that little paragraph probably took up more memory than that first console had in it, which is kind of cool. I mean, you still talk a lot, so my point still stands. Now, yeah, I know. Now, the first game designed for this prototype was, of course, Pong. The video game industry exploded into people's homes with Pong. Everybody was playing Pong at the moment. It was literally how video games were introduced to the masses. They followed this up with the hockey game a tic-tac-toe game, a shooting gallery. They had their little prototype. They still needed a way to switch between all these programs that Haskell had been programming. And while brainstorming, the idea came to them actually thanks to the Intel chip that they use as the microprocessor. Now, Intel encouraged the use of ROM chips to speed up the development process. And these were basically little microchips that you would program you put the programs on and then those chips would be soldered directly to a circuit board or they would be inserted into a socket that was found on the board, typically by, you know, some sort of professional. It, it really wasn't something that you could ask a consumer to do in the comfort of their own home. You know what I mean? Right. So they knew that they needed to figure out a way to create some sort of way for people to change out these ROMs. So they go to Radio Shack and they find these little gray plastic boxes and they designed a little prototype that allowed them to plug this, these gray boxes into the console with a little 25 pin connector that they put on it. So inside the box was a circuit board with the ROM chip soldered on it and it had the, the 25 pin connector like a little cable that would go from it to the to a connector on their prototype. Um, the 25-pin connector wasn't very durable, so they knew that it wasn't a long-term solution. But, but for the moment, 
it was an idea and it was a workable prototype. So mission successful, you know? So they take this prototype, the Raven, and they start shopping it around to various television manufacturers. And we've heard this before. Uh, they did the same thing happened with the Magnavox. You know, Magnavox Odyssey was not made in-house by Magnavox. And, and they shipped their stuff around too until Magnavox picked it up. We heard toy companies reject the... Um, God, what was that? Dragon's Lair. The guys who made Dragon's Lair. Remember, they made a console that was rejected by everyone? Mm, yes, but... <clears throat> it was called like the Fantasy Box or something like I that. I forget the name, yeah. So they shop it around to all these television manufacturers who all declined to develop the technology. And coincidentally, there was a um, there was a parts guy with Fairchild it, it, that knew the guys at Alpex because he sold them some of their parts, some components. And he said, hey, we got this cool thing. You should come take a look at it. So Fairchild was put in, you know, they reached out to Fairchild after that, and they were put in touch with Jerry Lawson. Now, Jerry Lawson joined Fairchild Semiconductor in 1970 as an applications engineering consultant within their sales division. So there's your sales engineer. He was largely self-taught as an engineer. He went to college, but he never finished any of his degrees. Uh, he was in heavy into ham radios, and he had various jobs where he learned... He kind of learned about how electrical engineering as he went through these jobs. And he ended up at Fairchild Semiconductor within her sales division. Um, while working in the sales division, he used his spare time to create a coin-operated game called Demolition Derby in his own garage. Now, Demolition Derby used one of Fairchild's own microprocessors. It was called the F8, the Fairchild F8. And that made Demolition Derby one of the earliest microprocessor-driven games that we know of, having been completed in early 1975. There were others, too. It's not the earliest, but it's one of them. And so he brought this back to Fairchild, and through this and his uh, in recognition of his other work, he was made chief hardware engineer and director of engineering and marketing for Fairchild's budding video game division. Now, something really funny about this. At the time... Nobody at Fairchild knew that there was a video game division. Lawson's own boss didn't even know that there was a video game division. Once they found out that Lawson had an affinity for video games, at the time, Fairchild was considering getting into video games, but they didn't really know. I mean, we're talking this is only a, a, a year or so after video games really exploded on the scenes. So there weren't really people that you could go to that had experience in this industry and they really didn't know what to do. So when Fairchild made that and they finally realized that they had someone in-house that was into video games, literally like the vice president of the company went right to Lawson and put him on this secret project to explore video games with its own budget and they didn't tell anybody else. He was like a secret video game agent. It's kind of cool. I... I'm just confused how, unless like I misunderstood and the owner of the company knew about it, but how no one else knew that this division existed. Well, the, 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 the vice president, and the president knew and a few people in the upper echelon knew. Okay. But it, sto so it stopped it's, there. It's kind of like skunk works with um, Lockheed Martin, the top secret division that did, did a lot of the like 
cool spy plane I mean, stuff. That's, that's essentially what it was at the time. It wasn't nearly as cool as spy planes, but well, I mean, they, you they... know, it, it is in a way for people that aren't interested in jets. You know, video games are a huge thing. The thing of it was is they didn't know if there was a any sort of a business opportunity in video games, and so they didn't want to advertise the fact that they were looking into it, and they didn't want to. They that's it. They didn't want to advertise they were looking into it. So they they had other people. They they basically said, "Hey, we need you to go and take a look at video games and tell us if this is viable." Well, this is about the time that the Alpex guys tripped on Jerry, and so they brought their Raven to Jerry Lawson, and of course Lawson was very impressed with the prototype. So he went back to his employer, who had been conducting their own other research. And they basically got this report where, like, someone told them that the video game industry is worth billions of dollars, which we, you know, they were like, eh, whatever. But of course, we know that's the truth at the time. And with that, collectively, they agreed to license the Raven technology from Alpex in January of 1976. So now Lawson has the Raven. He's got this prototype and he's allowed to assemble his own team to turn this metal box with circuit boards and make sh- it's got a keyboard with controls and it's got these weird cartridges that have a cable that plug into it all these weird things they needed to turn into a commercial project that they could sell right right so the first thing they do obviously is the raven had an intel processor that goes bye-bye and they replace it with Fairchild's own f8 microprocessor makes sense let's use our own in-house components Next, they worked on controls. The original prototype was, you know, designed more like a computer. Like I said, it had complex keyboard controls. And the other engineers on the team, who were Nick Tails 4 and Ron Smith, they worked to create a single, simple control stick for the Channel F. Basically, the end result basically looks like it's a joystick, like the stick part of a joystick, without a base. But it has like a triangle hat uh, on the top of it. And you know how you have the, um, like, in your flight sim joysticks, how you have that, that thumb switch on the top that helps you do the view? I can't remember what it's called right now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the, I mean, the hat switch. The hat switch. That That's ex- that's exactly what the original controller for this system was. It's just the joystick with a hat switch on top, and that hat switch had a button on it. So the hat switch was your, your, your up, down, left, right, and the button on top was your button. That was the controller. And it was held on top of a stick that you would hold with one hand, and the other hand was your thumb. Set. Can you kind of envision that? A little bit, yeah. Alright, so that's it. It's just a joystick with a little triangle hat switch at the top, and that little hat switch was your whole joystick, basically. So it didn't actually rotate at the base at all? It was just a base? There was there was no base. It was oh, just I thought you were saying you held it with like the thumb, the other hand with the thumb. No, 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 oh, no. It was okay. just a st- it was just literally just a round stick with a hat switch on top. Oh, okay. I mean, it was a giant a hat switch. Is a little giving it a little less description of what it deserves. I mean, it was a big triangle thing, but it wasn't you know it wasn't like a joystick like we think of today. So fair enough. After they redesigned the joystick, they then perhaps made their most significant contribution to video game history. They absolutely had to improve on the prototype cartridge designed by the guys at Alpex. Now just think about it for one second. Inserting and removing socketed electronic assemblies, which is what they were doing, you know, 
had pretty much only been done by trained professionals at that point. That was electronic engineers. That was trained technicians, military personnel, uh, people like that. And they wanted to take a sensitive circuit board and put it into the hands of, well, me and you, actually. And then who knows what, this, what it's going to be exposed to. Shock, static electricity, light, water, just all these absolute disastrous things that could ruin sensitive electronics, right? And so almost immediately, Tails 4 wanted to use the, he wanted to use a familiar form. So he went with an 8-track cartridge, and he got to work designing the plastic shell of the cartridge. Now the other guy, Ron Smith, on the other hand, he had the difficult task of figuring out how to make the cartridge physically attach and detach from the console. Now what he came up with is pretty much what we're used to today. To protect from accidental damage, Ron Smith's cartridge design contained a spring-loaded plastic door that protected 22 gold-plated contacts inside the plastic housing when it wasn't being used. And then once inserted into the console, the cartridge would open and expose the contacts well, a special connector with flexible metal pins inside the console would rotate up to meet the pins on the cartridge and make contact. And then also cool enough, inside the, the cartridge itself was this little device that as it all came undone, it would sweep along the pins to, to, per, like, to make sure there wasn't corrosion on there. Uh, it was actually a really ingenious design. As part of this, they also made the cartridge lock into place while you were actively playing so that the cartridge couldn't come out when you were playing. And, and with all this in mind, they basically figured out how to turn Alpex's weird prototype into a commercial product. In doing so, they created the Fairchild Channel F, which is the first console to ever use a microprocessor, and the first video game cartridges ever, ever, period. Wow. Neat, huh? That is very, very neat. I did not know that. And yet... They gave us a little bit more, too. More, you say? Yeah. The main unit of the console itself has a hold button, which allows players to freeze the game and change game settings in the meantime, which means that this is also the first console to ever have a pause button. Nice. Also, the F8 processor at the heart of this console had just enough power to produce a really basic AI that allowed for the player that allowed for player versus computer matches. This AI was featured in a few games, including tic-tac-toe and chess. So this is also the first console ever that allowed you to play against the computer, which I think is kind of cool too. I mean, that is very cool when you think about it to know it's the first one. I mean, I don't know, I guess it's just, especially being a name that I'm not familiar with. I mean, we take out all for granted now, but I mean, and not that there were a lot of consoles before that. I mean, the, but you had the mana box, but I mean, here you have it. You know, this is this is a uh, the first time you could. You gotta you gotta imagine how flipping cool would it be to step up to this and like be able to play against with nobody else. Like that had to that had to have blown someone's mind. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm sure it did. Um, and I think that's so cool. Um. So it was released in November 1976 as the Fairchild Video Entertainment System, and it retailed for $169.95. Um, in case you think we have it bad today as gamers, I looked it up. $169.95 in 1976 is the equivalent of about $856.86 today. God damn. 
Yeah. And if you're curious about the name, the following year, Atari released the 2600, which was also known as the VCS, or Video Computer System. And so to distinguish themselves, Fairchild changed its name to the Channel F, or Channel Fun. It's not even a joke. In their commercials, the F stands for fun. That's how they advertised it. That's incredible. In the end, here's some statistics if you're geeky like we are. The Fairchild Channel F operated at a whopping 1.789 megahertz and could display eight colors at a max resolution of 128 by 64. Um, Wow. The first version of the console had built-in speakers, though there was eventually a second version released that allowed for audio output through the TV. One of the other changes in the second version of the console is the joysticks could be removed. One of the coolest things the Atari did, I'm sure we'll talk about it if we do an Atari episode, was the Atari was the first console that had the, the controller port where you could plug in and remove your controllers. And after Atari did that, pretty much everyone else started to use that same Atari port in their consoles. So in the second version of the Channel F, they had the Atari, not the Atari joysticks, it was the same joysticks. They just, they used the port to connect joysticks so you could remove them and store them inside the console. Now, Let's talk about its library. There were a whopping 27 video carts, that's what they called them, released for retail purchase in the United States. They could be purchased for $19.95, which would be the equivalent of $100.58 today. Can you imagine? I mean, we do buy $100 games, but can you imagine if every game was $100? I mean, when you buy all premium editions, they kind of are, you know? I mean, if you really look at it that way, and with this, that's... They basically were premium edition. Very true. Fairchild game cartridges. You can find them. You can find the system online for used starting at a couple hundred dollars, two, three hundred dollars to brand new or thousands. And the cartridges are on there, too. They're bright yellow and they look like a track cartridges. They're all numbered. There were there were actually two games built into the console. They were hockey and tennis. Or you could purchase one of the 27 other games, which included games like tic-tac-toe shooting gallery video blackjack space war math quiz magic numbers drag race baseball robot war pinball challenge bowling galactic space wars and more wow all in all fairchild only sold about three hundred and fifty thousand of the channel f the atari 2600 the vcs like i said would be released the following year and well it sold millions. Uh, so Fairchild kind of fell into obscurity alongside the Atari, just like everyone else that made games consoles back then. Uh, so many of them aren't really known well because of the Atari. In 1979, Fairchild sold their technology to a company called Zircon, who made some improvements to the console, as I just said, and they re-released it as the Channel F System 2. They managed to release another six games for the console and then pulled the plug completely on it. Nice. That is the Fairchild Channel F. Now, every week we uh, we kind of talk about what happened after. So let's do that housekeeping and we'll close this story out by seeing how everyone fared. Servan Mills Fairchild, the guy who founded a ton of companies, was an aviation whiz. Uh, he remained fairly successful. He died in 1971, left most of his $200 million estate to charity, including the Sherman Fairchild Foundation, which still exists today 
and I looked them up. They they give out about thirty eight million dollars a year. That's their annual giving. So they're still a pretty big pretty big organization. Wow. When he died, he also donated to the Salvation Army and the ASPCA, which is an animal rescue. So he's okay in my book. I think he ended up giving like two hundred thousand to the Salvation Army and a hundred thousand to the ASCP, ASPCA. So that's cool. The Sherman Fairchild Foundation is all about like art and culture and stuff like that. The Shockey, the Semiconductor Laboratory, never really recovered from the departure of the Traitorous Eight. Like I said, it we know we talked about it being founded in 1955. The Traitorous Eight left in 1957. The lab was sold to another company once in 1960, and it was sold again in 1968, and it closed very shortly thereafter. And then, like I said, the Fairchildren. Over a period of 20 years, about 65 different companies were started by teams that could trace their origins to that semiconductor laboratory. So the semiconductor, so Shockley and Fairchild are definitely the beginnings of Silicon Valley. I think that's a really fascinating thing to take away from today. Fairchild Semiconductors really reached its peak there in the mid-60s. It was still a strong company throughout the 70s when the story was taking place, obviously. They made the Fairchild Channel F in 1976. But as with most businesses, business, it's up and down. They changed hands a few times. They were sold to one of their competitors, National Semiconductors, in 1987. Someone reformed them as their own company in 1997, and they remained a major player in the semiconductor market until they were finally bought out by um, Onemi, O-N, Semiconductors in 2016. William Shockey himself continued to be a dick until his death in 1989. He was said to be cruel towards his children and just generally unhappy with life. At the time of his death, he was estranged from most of his friends and family. In fact little fun wikipedia fact i felt to share with you guys his children reportedly learned of his death by reading his obituary in the newspaper Hmm. it's not funny but i I no it's funny no no wait it's funny because i'm not done yet what shaki is probably best known for now unfortunately i mean that's not true he's best known as the inventor of the transistor but that being said he's also known for having some really extreme views on race human intelligence And he was a strong advocate for eugenics. If you don't know what eugenics is, it's that whole let's cleanse the gene pool and only breed the the good people kind of crap. And it's really sad because he did make one of the most important scientific inventions of our time. There are few inventions that can say they altered the course of human history. And the transistor really genuinely is one of those inventions. Honestly, there's no doubt about that. We wouldn't have any of the stuff that we we wouldn't be here on computers. We just we wouldn't have modern electronics without the invention of the transistor. He he really did something important. But unfortunately, he was just not a good person. Jerry Lawson left Fairchild in 1980 and he founded VideoSoft, which funny enough was a video game development company that made software for the Atari 2600. Nice. I don't know why, but that makes me so happy. Hey, bye, Fairchild. I'm going to go make software for the popular system now. (sighs) Videosoft closed five years later, and he ended up taking various consulting jobs throughout the rest of his life. He died in 2011, 
about a month after he was finally honored by the International Game Developers Association for leading the development of the video game cartridge as we know it today. It's really funny because he gets most of the credit for the cartridge and and it really wasn't his I'd say it wasn't his invention. The truth of the matter is everyone was kind of working on something similar at the at the time because Fairchild came out with it, but Atari came out with it at the same time. And it's really funny how they did that too. When they when Ron Smith was trying to work on his solution for the Fairchild Channel F, he hired a contract engineer to help him like work through the process. And when he was done with that contract engineer, that contract engineer went to go work for Atari. And he's the guy that's credited with inventing the cartridge for Atari. Fun little fact there. Can't remember his name. You know, the guys at Alpex, Haskell and Kirshner, they did their work on this too. You know, they were the first ones that were inspired to do this. And then they gave it to Lawson, who along with Tales 4 and Smith, they turned it into a commercial project. So it really was a whole team that made the cartridge. But lo and behold, Lawson's kind of the guy that made it happen, so he gets a lot of credit for it. Now, when it comes to Kirshner, Ron Smith, Tales 4, or Lawrence Haskell, I dug. I couldn't really find much, uh, anything, actually, about what anyone did past that. I I looked. I mean, maybe with more time and digging, I could have found it, but I don't know what happened to any of those guys. And... I mean, the Channel F didn't do much. It may have been the first to come out with cartridges, but once the Atari came out, it was just done for. And Fairchild as a company just moved on to other things, you know? I mean, Rob, once the Atari came out, there really wasn't anyone else. I mean, sure, you've got what? What are the other systems in that generation, like the Intellivision, for instance? Um, You're going to know a lot better than me, Dave. Yeah, I know. The Intellivision... On the computer side, we have the Commodore 64, um, but really, the Atari just dominated. And there's a funny reason why every other manufacturer focused on the hardware, and Atari was dedicated to games. Like their thought was, if we make the games, people will buy our console. And so, realistically, the games as a service model that that by and large the gaming industry is defined by today really started with the atari vcs back way back in the 70s and that that's how atari crushed everybody else by focusing on the games more than the console itself a little fun fact there if you're ever curious if we ever do an episode on that we get to talk about why atari dominated we'll cover that more in detail but they focused on the games that's how they did it well damn we talked about what other Atari games have we talked about before? Do you remember? I know we've talked about like Adventure, for instance, when we did like the cheat code episode because they had one of the earliest Easter eggs in it. We talked about Missile Command before. Yep. I know we talked about that. What else? Uh, you know, Dave, quite honestly, it's escaping me at the moment. I know. It's tough. You got to go back and look at everything. Well, if you want to see all the other stuff we've talked about, you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Also at memorycardlane.com, you can find um, our old episodes, our show notes, a calendar of upcoming episodes. You can find our biographies. You can find a link to our Discord and also links to our social media. I am found on various platforms as David is wrong. And Rob, what are you doing on social media these days? 
Well, Dave, I can be found on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. That is correct. Well, each week we like to tell you the story about one thing relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week it was the Fairchild Channel F. In doing so, we hope to teach you something new about it, the people around it, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. As part of our commitment to you to tell you these stories, we like to admit that we learn things too. The best part about teaching is learning things ourselves. And so that's what we like to talk about to wrap up every episode, little roundtable. So Rob, what was your biggest takeaway from today? Well, I think for me, Dave, it's the simple fact that this console that I've never honestly heard of until tonight uh, kind of led way to, uh, I mean, in a sense, with you, you consider the uh, the transistors and all of that, like it all just one of the largest technological developments came about with involvement with this damn console that just because of Atari is so overshadowed that I've never even heard of it. Well, I mean, almost quite literally because of that little connection where one of the contract engineers eventually went over to Atari. They literally took what Fairchild was doing and they they did did it with the Atari. Now, there were other systems. um, Crap, was it Mattel? Someone else was working on a cartridge-based system at the time, too. Um, So they were all kind of doing it at the same time. The Fairchild just happens to be the one that beat everyone out to the punch. You know what I mean? No, absolutely, but it's just it's it's crazy because you know it's just when you think of the involvement with Silicon Valley and you know quite literally how everything that we do now is is made. It's just really interesting. Yeah, I think that's the coolest thing. Honestly, that's my big takeaway. I had never really paid attention. I mean, I know of the Fairchild Channel F. I know about Jerry Lawson. I know of this console's significance to the video game industry. So none of this was, none of that was a surprise. But what I didn't know, because I had never really ever considered what Fairchild was, is I never learned about how Fairchild was really the incubator for microprocessors, not microprocessors, because that came elsewhere. Intel did that, semiconductors. Fairchild is really the the roots of semiconductors and Silicon Valley and all that. And I'd never really put that together. So that was the cool part for me is getting to learn about the history of that into into this console for today. I think that was very, very cool. Never heard about the Traders 8 either. I think that's a cool story. No, absolutely. Um, and that's that's also what I was trying to get to when I was speaking. It's just I, I mistakenly said transistor. But yeah, semiconductors are what I yeah. was referring to. Um, no, you're no, you were right. They did. They um, by and large, you know. They made the transistor and then they kept improving on it. If I'm not mistaken, they were also really the first company to do an integrated circuit successfully, like a like a viable, commercially um, usable integrated circuit. And of course, it all just snowballed from there. So, well, I mean, um, ICs are just made from transistors yeah. in different configurations. So, yeah, it's all numbers at the end of the day. It's zeros and ones, but in circuit form. It is so cool. The history of all that is so cool. Yeah, it. I mean, if, if it is interesting to you learning how circuits designed um, and how all of it came to be, just knowing that 
all these transistors create these different gates that create these different chips and it's all literally inside of there and you just you'd never know that just until you start learning about it but yes it is obviously i i studied it so for me it's very interesting and something that i'm quite passionate about so you know i find it very cool and today our passions got to come together when you got to learn about the history did they ever teach do they teach you that stuff when you go through the classes on any of this you know, I cannot honestly say that they taught us about, I mean, maybe it's one of those things that escaped me. It was one of maybe the half I slept through a class or something, but um, I, I don't recall ever learning about the history of them. Obviously, we learned about how semiconductors are doped and how PNP versus NPN transistors and things like that. But like as far as this, the creator and things, I mean, it's it might have been a name. Hey, here's a name. But after that, it's here's their behaviors, here's how they work, so on yeah. and so forth. Yeah, I can understand that. I, I don't, I'm just curious if it ever came up. I don't honestly think it has any application in engineering. It doesn't matter that the, the, the usage of it is what's important, but I was just curious. Awesome. Well, Rob, I think we've done it. We've learned all about transistors and the Fairchild Channel F. So... Before I take it out of here, is there anything that you'd like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do just want to take one quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It means a lot. We hope you enjoy it. And if you don't, thanks for listening anyway, because it helps our numbers. Oh, they're going to enjoy this one. This was a this was a fascinating story, and I didn't trip on myself too much today. So this is this is probably a good one for a lot of people. Maybe we'll see. Well, we'll, we'll see. know if they get to this point. <laughs> all right well yes what he said which was thank you i think right you said thank you yeah something like that okay all right just checking thank you next week next week next week next week so what started out as a mod for half-life eventually turned into one of the most definitive first person shooters of the early 2000s and in doing so became the bedrock of much of the competitive gaming scene that we have today. Released in November of 2000, Half-Life Counter-Strike is a tactical first-person shooter that now has 20 years of history behind it, and we're going to take a look at all 20 years. So join us again next week as we disarm the bomb on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Scoop-da-da-ding-da-do-do-da-boo-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da